Well, greetings. It's good to be with you this morning. What a what a joy to to see you all here today. We've been going through a study in the book of Acts, and if you don't already, I encourage you to grab a Bible and open to the the book of Acts. We're in chapter four today. A few weeks ago, we were in chapter one, where we discovered that we have a mission. Jesus left; he returned to heaven and left us with a mission to be his witnesses to take the good news of the gospel worldwide, starting next door and going to the very ends of the earth. In chapter 2, we found the power for the mission, just as Jesus promised back when He gave the mission in verse 8 of chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses. The Holy Spirit indeed came in chapter 2. We see it. the Holy Spirit came upon the believers at Pentecost. And we learn there the Holy Spirit now lives within each and every believer in Jesus Christ, empowering us and enabling us for the mission. Last week in chapter 3, Pastor Aaron pointed out the message of our mission. After Peter and John healed a man who had been lame from birth, the Apostle Peter addressed the marveling crowds and he confronted them there with the truth of their and the reality of their sin, then he pointed them to Jesus whom they had killed but whom God had raised from the dead. And then he offered to them God's grace that anyone who will repent, who will turn and believe in Jesus, will find forgiveness of sins. That invitation, by the way, is still open today to any of, any of you here who have never yet trusted in Jesus Christ. God calls to you today and invites you to trust in Jesus as your Savior and find forgiveness from sin in Him. Well, in these first few days and weeks of the church here in the book of Acts, amazing and marvelous, wonderful, wonderful, exciting things have been happening. The church has grown from just 120 believers who were gathered in that upper room in chapter 1 to in chapter 2, there's some 3,000 believers in Jesus Christ. When we come here to chapter 4, we'll see in verse 4 of this chapter that it has grown then to 5,000. It says 5,000 men, and it's a very specific word in Greek. It's not 5,000 people. It's not mankind or humans. It is 5,000 men, biological men. And so the point is that, that there's... If there's 5,000 men who are believers, there are probably similar numbers of women and and young people, children. And so the church is likely now, here by chapter 4, some 15,000 or so believers. The first megachurch, by the way. But just as everything is going like, as we say in Texas, like gangbusters, the next three chapters of Acts describe three things that threatened to undo this marvelous movement of God. Three things that are impediments to the mission. Three things that are threatened to undo it and they are still at work today and still getting in the way of you and me carrying on the mission in our own day. And so today here in chapter 4, the next two weeks, chapters 5 and chapter 6, we're going to be looking at three impediments to the mission Here in chapter 4, we find the first of those impediments, and it is persecution. You see, for the Jewish leaders, this situation has 
become and is continuing to grow by the day more intolerable for them. They executed Jesus because He was a threat to their system. He was a threat to their power. Then came all those pesky reports of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now instead of a dead Jesus, these leaders are finding that they have a large and growing movement of Jesus' followers who are meeting every single day in their temple. (laughs) It's actually God's temple. They forgot that. They're meeting every day in their temple and they're talking about Jesus being alive and they are doing miracles now like Jesus did. The healing of this 40-year-old lame man who had begged daily at the temple gate was an indisputable miracle. Every one of the leaders and everyone in Jerusalem had seen this man for decades as they would come and go in the temple. There was that same man and suddenly he is healed and the news has gone viral. It's attracting huge crowds. And Peter and the disciples are teaching that this man has been healed in Jesus' name. Jesus who has been raised from the dead, who is the promised Messiah, and that it was the current this current generation and the current leaders who killed Him. And so, of course, the leaders are ticked. Verse 1, chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and with Caiaphas and with John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? The leaders arrest Peter and John. They hope that somehow they can threaten, intimidate, coerce these Jesus followers to somehow end this. Because it's evening and too late to gather together a trial, they put them in prison overnight. And Luke, as he's writing this, wants us to understand just how serious of a situation this is. Because if you'll notice, he lists no less than six different groups and five different individuals who are involved in this interrogation. Verse 4, he mentions the priests and the the captain of the temple guard. The Romans are in control, obviously, of the the country and the city, but they allow the the Jews to have a small little military, a police, to guard and and supervise and, and take care of the temple. So the captain of the guard there is is involved in this, along with the Sadducees. Then in verse 5, you have the rulers and the elders and the scribes. And then it mentions Annas, who is the retired high priest, and his son Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, and along with everyone who is part of the high priestly family. What he's describing here is the Sanhedrin, the 70-member high or supreme court of the Jews, plus more. Basically, what's here is the who's who of power in the 
of the Jews, everyone who has any prominence and significance and power in the Jewish hierarchy and structure and governance is here. This is designed to be an intimidating situation. The high, they're all heavy hitters. And they have gathered all these folks together to deal with two fishermen. Two guys from Galilee, hillbillies, hicks from the north. Chapter 4, verse 8. We pick up the story. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means, and by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It was an intimidating audience, but Peter boldly addresses the crowd He, as it were, points his finger at them and says, this man was healed by the name of Jesus who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That is bold. Then he takes them back to Psalm 118. He quotes from from this psalm which which speaks of the stone that the builders rejected who has become the cornerstone. And Peter says, that's Jesus. And he says, then there is no other, there is no other name, there is no other one by whom we can, by whom we must be saved. And these leaders are astonished. <laughs> they can't believe these guys are so bold. They also can't believe, I don't think, how articulate they are. For Peter has just shut them down. They don't have anything to say. It says they're speechless. You notice what's absent here is Peter says that you crucified Jesus and God has raised Him from the dead. And you will notice that they don't. All of these, it's the 70 of the Sanhedrin and more, so perhaps a hundred or more folks here, and none of them try to refute it. You see, the implication is they know they cannot refute the resurrection of Jesus. If they could have, they would have. If they can't go there, leave it alone. (laughs) These men have done a miracle and they can't refute that. They can't dispute it. The guy that was healed that every one of them has seen, perhaps tossed a little coin every now and then to this poor wretched fellow laying there by the gate. And now he's standing there healed. Nobody can argue it. His story, his past is well known and now his story is 
known by everybody in Jerusalem, including these men. They don't know what to say and they can't think of a good course of action. We can't do anything with these guys because outside there's a crowd of 15, 20,000 people. They're afraid of the crowd. So what are we going to do? They order them to be quiet. Verse 18. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. For all, everyone, were praising God for what had happened because the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They warned them, don't speak any more of Jesus. Peter respectfully but boldly says, you judge for yourselves. Do we listen to you guys? Or do we listen to God? As for us, we cannot help but speak of what God has shown us, what we have seen, what we have heard. There's a great principle there for every one of us. You and I, no matter what the authorities say and do, no matter who the authorities are, we are to be respectful. But at the same time, while we are to be respectful, and while we are to submit to all authority, as Paul writes to the Romans, Romans chapter 13, you can read that, we are to submit to every authority, for every authority comes from God. Whenever there is a contradiction, a conflict between the authority, the human authority, and between God, we are always to obey God rather than obey men. The leaders, again, have little else to say, so they warn them, they threaten them, they release them. And now here, for the rest of this book of Acts, persecution is coming upon the church. How will this little band respond. While there's a good crowd, some 15,000 believers, it is still a very, a very young and tentative thing, this church. The crowds can easily be disbanded by force. There is not a lot that is holding this group together from a human standpoint that they can see. The leadership is rather weak. <laughs> At least that's been the track record in the past. They are certainly inexperienced. None of these leaders has ever led a large group like this before. And the Jewish leaders think they can easily shut this down. Or at least they're going to try. The first impediment that we find here in Acts to the Gospel is persecution. Persecution is not something that most of us are very familiar with, not something that we have much experience with. We may read about persecution, we may hear about it, we may see videos on it, but I, I doubt that any of us, maybe one or two in this room, have any personal experience with persecution. It simply has not been part of our experience as American Christians. 
In the 1500s, uh, later to mid-1500s, there was a man by the name of John Fox who wrote a book which became known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a Christian classic. It, it, uh, it details the history of the persecutions and the executions of Christians beginning with Stephen, the first martyr, whose story we'll see in a few chapters. And on with the apostles and on up through, uh, through history up till John Fox's day. When it came out, the book was an instant classic and it, along with the, with the Bible, which kind of emerged with the printing press, uh, those two books were the most, the most, uh, well published and most read books, uh, of all in, for over a century. It's a book that I commend to you, you ought to read. It's at times gory. It is very sobering. But it is the history of the church. In the introduction to, at least, because there are several versions of it as, as Fox kept, kept amending and altering and adding to it, but uh, in one of the introductions to the book uh, that I have, he he's uh, refers to this verse that Jesus this, that Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Fox goes on to comment to make three astute observations on that verse in his introduction. He says, first, he notes that Christ will have a church in this world. Secondly, that the same church should mightily be impugned and only, not only by the world, but by the uttermost strength and powers of all hell. And thirdly, that the same church, notwithstanding the uttermost power of the devil and all his malice, should continue. Fox goes on to say that the history of the church is a verification, a validation of that prophecy of Jesus. For through, for there is a church. Jesus has a church. And secondly, through history, the vast majority of Jesus' church has endured various sufferings and persecutions. That's a rather difficult thing for you and me to believe and understand today because we have lived in a relatively unique spot in history. A little bubble of history where as the church and as people we have enjoyed freedom we have enjoyed security. We have enjoyed prosperity. But it is not typical of the history of the church, nor is it even typical of most of the church of our present day. And many would say, and I don't disagree, it may not be the case much longer here in America. But... Even as promised, the point three, Jesus has a church and historically the church has endured persecution, but even as Jesus promised, rather than suffering and persecution destroying the church, the church has always grown stronger and has thrived in such times. Pastor Stephen Cole said it this way as he wrote of persecution, he says, it Persecution or suffering burns out impurity out of the church. It drives away the nominal and the worldly attenders. It separates the church from the world. It drives the church to prayer and it unites the church in brotherly love. 
it may very well be that that's exactly what the American church needs today. Is some persecution to unite us and drive us to prayer and to drive out the worldly and the nominal attenders. However, while there is a reality that suffering might be good for the church, uh, I, I'm hesitant to pray for it. Actually, I would say I'm not brave enough and bold enough to pray for it. I don't know about you guys. Any of you guys been praying that persecution would come on the church? Didn't think so. Actually, there's nothing in Scripture that encourages us to do that. As I've read through the Scriptures, I don't find any place where it says, pray for persecution. Pray that it will come on the church. Actually, the opposite. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, first of them, I, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people and especially, he says, for kings, for all those who are in authority, high positions, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, we're to pray for our leaders. Boy, how we need to exercise and apply this Scripture, put it into practice. We need to be praying for our leaders, for our state leaders, local leaders, national leaders, As we come into an election season, we need to be praying for our leaders. But, and and he says that so we can have a quiet and peaceful life. But the next two verses are really critical. These two verses need those next two to explain why. We're to pray for a quiet and a peaceful life, not so we can sit back in lounge chairs and get fat and happy. The next verse goes on, this is good and pleases God our Father who desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, the reason that Paul says we want you to have a quiet and peaceful life is so that you're free to share the gospel. So that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The problem is that we sit back in our lazy boys and get fat and happy. And that most of us as American Christians, according to the surveys and statistics, live our life with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the truth of the Gospel and the Word of God and amazing Bible teachers out there and preachers and great music and radio stations and everything else. And most of us as Christians never share the Gospel with a single person in our lifetime. And so it may be that persecution may come on this church in order to wake us up. The reality is, whether it does or not upon us, Scripture is clear that as believers, most of us can expect suffering. For the Scripture says, Jesus told the disciples, He said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John chapter 15 Verse 20. So I have a question. When when oppression and persecution start, when, when it starts getting hot to live for Jesus, how will or how should we respond? I very quickly want to just note from these early believers 
how they responded and we can learn from their example. There are really five vital responses that we need. Five vital responses as we respond to oppression, resistance, persecution. I'm going to pick it up here with the rest of the story. Verse 23. They had threatened the apostles. They've let them go. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. A couple of things and we'll move on. First, first thing that happened, Peter and John get free. First place they go is back to the believers to tell them what happened. First thing for us to do whenever the things get hot, whenever the persecution comes, what we need to do is unite with other believers. Be committed to one another, to draw upon one another, to support one another. We're in this together. There is encouragement and strength as we support one another. It is in, unmistakably in these early chapters, especially of the book of Acts, it is a major theme, the, the unity and the cohesiveness of the church. We are connected. We are tied together. We need one another. How different it is for us here. What time is it? Oh, should we go to church today? I'm a little tired. I'm not sure. Maybe. What's on TV today? Is there a game? I gotta, you know. We, we come to church. If the weather is just a little cloudy or a little cold, well, maybe not this week. I'll go next week. It's deer season. Oh my. Uh, you know, as American Christians, church is just kind of this optional thing if we feel like it. But it wasn't for these believers. And the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 10 of Hebrews, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. But he says, we need to be coming together and all the more, he says, as you see the day approaching. How we need it all the more. I challenge you to go and to talk to Believers around the world where the heat is turned up and the opposition and the persecution is coming because what you discover is that our brothers and sisters there risk enormous, enormous, take enormous amounts of risk to gather together because they realize it's not optional, it is needed. I need you, you need me. And so they're willing to risk employment, they're willing to risk their possessions, they're willing to risk their well-being, even their very life, to gather with other believers. Do you realize that we need one another that badly? These guys did. As soon as they get released, they look up the other brothers and sisters, talk to them, share with them what's happening. They give a full report, verse 23. 
Verse 24, it says, and together they lifted their voices. That little word there, together, means literally with one mind, with one accord. They are, they are bound together. Verse 24, closely tied with that unity, is what they do. Because they don't just get together and have a party. Woohoo! It's your coming out of the, out of prison, out of the trial party. And so let's have a, let's, you know, have a big feast and all that stuff. They, they may have eaten, but that wasn't what they did. They didn't just celebrate. They didn't just sit around and shoot the breeze and tell stories and jokes and talk about sports teams. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported, verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. And what a prayer. They prayed, and it starts off with, folks, along with the unity of the church, the other big theme that I cannot miss as I go through these early chapters here in Acts is that they were united in prayer and devoted to prayer. It uses that phrase several times. Personal prayer is wonderful and needful and important, but equally important and desperately valued by the early church was corporate prayer. They met together to pray. Church prayer meetings, for the most part in America, are dead. Most churches don't. And yet, as I see the early church, it was essential to the life and the survival and the power of the church. I think weak prayer equals a weak church. In response to persecution, the church unites and the church prays. Verse 24, as they started their prayer, look at this. They prayed, they said, first words, Sovereign Lord. That's important. That Greek word there is despotes. It, it means, it transliterated, it's despot. It's, it means a king who has all authority, absolute power. They go on, they note that he is the one who is the creator of heaven and earth. He, he made everything and he filled everything that's in the heavens and the earth. He made. God is the absolute master. He has created everything. And then they quote from Psalm 2 as they pray and Psalm 2 says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? Why did people rage and fit and spit and spat and fume against God? Because they're doing it in vain. You can't fight God. Notice what they did. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. They quote that and then they apply it in the prayer. They explain it. They say, Lord, indeed, what you promised back there, what you, what David wrote all the way back there a thousand years ago happened and we saw it. The nations, the Gentiles, the Romans who are here got together with the rulers, the, the Jewish leaders, and they set themselves against you and against Jesus, your anointed one. And they killed him. But just in case we get the thought that God, who is the sovereign ruler, just kind of lost control, they said, God, we realize that they came together, the people you put in power came together and did exactly what you knew and intended they would do. Your sovereign hand was in control all the way along. Your plan was, notice verse 28, you had predestined, you had already determined this was going to happen. In other words, God, you are the sovereign leader who is in control 
You were in control when you wrote the prophecy back in Psalm in Psalm 2. You were in control when Jesus was betrayed and crucified. And you are in control today when the leaders drag us in and threaten us. You are the sovereign God who is in control. And so we're going to rest. We're not going to panic. We're not going to fret. We're not going to fear. We're going to rest. You're sovereign. Verse 27, it happened just like you said it would. Verse 29, they continue the prayer. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. These folks united together as believers. They united in prayer. They rested in God's sovereignty. And then in verse 29, he says, as they pray, they said, God, look at their threats. Here's all the powers that are arrayed against us and we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're outmanned. Uh, We... Everybody who has power, everybody who has position, everybody who has money, all the intelligentsia of the day, they're all against us. Now, God, you look at their threats and we're leaving it up to you. They chose to depend upon God. They realize that if the spread of the gospel depends on their ability, upon their strength, upon their resources, then the spread of the gospel is doomed. And it is the same way in, your, in our age with us as it was with them. If the spread of the gospel depends on your abilities and my abilities, on our great wisdom, on our great pooled resources, we're in big trouble. But if we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit working through us and get busy and engage the mission, He will do it. As they said, Lord, look at the threats. There they are. And now, Lord, we're going to depend on you to get the job done. Do you notice that what they don't ask for in their requests, what they don't say is, God, stop them. Stop Caiaphas. Stop Annas. Stop the, the Sanhedrin. Squalch them. Shut them down. You know, they don't say, Lord, end the persecution. Take us back to a nice, peaceful little life here where everything's exciting. They don't say that. What they say is, Lord, give us said, Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word. Give us the ability to keep speaking. And then they say, and give us all boldness. How many of you could use boldness today? Probably most of us. Have you prayed and asked God for it? We tend to pray and ask for a lot of things. New cars, new houses, health, strength. Rarely do we say, Lord, give me the power to do the mission. Keep me bold with the gospel, whatever the cost. They were depending on God to do it and they believe He will do it. And then the last response says, when they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak. They stayed on mission. The last response is obey. Keep busy doing what Jesus told us to do. Go be His witnesses. 
We get over and we won't go there today, but next week we're in chapter 5. We're not going to see this part at the end of the chapter. We look for the, the, these folks and where are they? They're back in the temple. They're teaching and preaching. And it says, and many more, more than ever, were being added to the church because they boldly continue to preach. I wonder, we don't live with persecution. We don't live with oppression. And I wonder if it came upon us, will we be ready? Will we do these five things when the persecution comes? It hit me as I was going through the list that actually every one of these things are things we're already supposed to be doing as the church. We are supposed to, all through the New Testament, we're supposed to be living together in unity as believers. Paul encourages us, Ephesians chapter 6, that we are to pray for one another because we're in spiritual warfare. We need to be praying for one another. And Paul says to the church there in Ephesus, pray for me that I might have boldness to preach as I ought. We ought together to be resting in God's sovereignty. He's in control. Don't panic and worry as you see the the cruddy news and you realize the sorry state of political affairs in our land. Yes, vote, but don't worry. Matter of fact, it's not even our priority. Our priority is mission. Be witnesses for Jesus. We need to depend upon God's strength. And we need to obey. I think if we start practicing these things and do these things now, we'll be ready whenever and if ever oppression and persecution knocks on our door. Father, keep us on mission. You've given us a mission. We haven't been sidetracked. The majority of us have not been sidetracked by persecution because we haven't had any. But the majority of us have been sidetracked and sidelined by comfort. Lord God, impress upon us again the privilege and the blessing and the importance of the mission You've left us to be Jesus ambassadors, His witnesses. Unite us as the body. Deepen us in prayer. May we rest upon You and depend upon You and may You empower us and strengthen us and may we be obedient to be busy together as witnesses until Jesus returns. In His name we ask it. Amen.